to Just James Horror Reviews. I am your host, Just James, and today I will be talking about my favorite author, the Crimson Queen of Cosmic Calamity and Celestial Chaos, the Monarch of Mayhem and the Morbid, the Mother Superior of the Monstrous and the Macabre. She is P.L. McMillan. Blessed be her name in the Book of the Dead and the chapters of the Necronomicon. Hallelujah! Holy shit! Boogity, boogity, boogity. This is episode 13. Today we will be talking about author P.L. McMillan. She has a website, plmcmillan.com. You can go on there and get all of her information. She has an art portfolio. She has a Dead Languages podcast that she hosts with another author, Carson Winter. She has short stories. Her novellas are available on there. She also does interviews with other authors who have uh, recently published works and also have past published works. She is a very busy professional, but you can go on her website. She's even got merch. So go on there, check it all out. You can read more about her bio and other things that I'm probably not going to get into here because I want to focus on the book itself, plmcmillan.com. Go check it out. On her website, she states that she is infatuated with the works of Shirley Jackson, H.P. Lovecraft, and Ridley Scott. Also, on other reviews of her works, I've seen a lot of people compare her to H.P. Lovecraft, Shirley Jackson, kind of that um, that eldritch horror type of uh, horror that you're going to get from those, those writers, especially H.P. Lovecraft. That name comes up a lot when compared with her. The only danger I see when people use a big name like that, whether it's Lovecraft or, you know, if you were going to say Shirley Jackson or Stephen King or, or any of these people... You go in with that expectation. So instead of just taking this person on their own merits and developing your own type of feel for their work, you go in expecting something that is Lovecraftian. This person, all I think it's it's more of the themes and the tones that you could say are Lovecraft, but I really truly believe that she has her own voice in the horror genre. So I think that's people just trying their best to describe what they could compare it to. However, I do feel like she stands on her own and not just some type of, you know, copycat or laminate of other authors. So, on the website, like I said, she she says she's inspired by Shirley Jackson, H.P. Lovecraft, and Ridley Scott. Now, what I've noticed about these three, other than the content of their work, is they're great storytellers. And to me, this being one of my favorite authors, what I've connected with the most is how she crafts a story. She can take you to just unbelievable places, whether it's, you know, in space, on Earth, or somewhere else, and you really feel like you're there. She takes you to those places where you are in great danger. Death is most likely certain, but the evil you face, it's eternal, and it's without prejudice. So you have this great, monstrous, horrible thing in and of itself that is just doing what it's doing, but for you, it is certain death. It, it it just is, and it will be, and you're powerless to stop it. And how she creates a story around that is, you, you might have a main character, or a main idea, or a main um, concept that's going through it, but what I love about this type of horror, and this type of storytelling, which I think goes back to the three influences that she has, is you may have a main character, but the main character is not the story. 
the story is this great, big, bad, terrible thing that's going to kill you or end your life or twist time and space and, you know, that's just going to demolish the whole fabric of the universe just because it is what it is. Whereas the main character, and I feel like that's very much uh, how Dread is built in these stories from the very beginning because you're able to get that sense of there's this great big eternal thing and there's no way this one individual who is flawed and has their own issues is going to be able to stop this, you know, universe crushing eldritch, you know, sci-fi monster horror beast. That thing's coming and it's coming with a fury and there's nothing you're going to do about it. It doesn't matter how good and uh, religious and chaste and you know, you do all the right kind of things, or if you're just evil and wicked and full of sin and hate and just a bad person, it doesn't matter. This thing's wiping everybody out, whatever it might be, whether it's a person or a situation or a place. And to me, that is part of that, if you want to say that H.P. Lovecraft style, dread building storytelling. Another thing this author does that I really, really like is she builds relationships throughout her stories. And this even occurs in short stories. So as we go through the different uh, short stories that we're going to discuss today, you can see how she's able to add all these elements into these stories and compact them in a very short amount of time, but do it in a way that's very realistic and plausible and very real worldish. So it's going to feel very natural and a situation where you can see yourself like, oh, this could totally be me or someone I know. And this is exactly how I would react or my sister, or my brother, whoever would react in this situation. You know, not not every story has to have uh, some kind of knight in shining armor that's just going to save the day. Sometimes we're all just helpless sacks of meat and we're going to perish like everybody else. It doesn't matter. So that's kind of the, the beautiful part of these writings that I love so much. And really, it's it's a loss of it's the loss of safety and control it's the the helplessness and the fact that there is no hope and that you know anytime these characters get any type of you know any any headway or you know hope presents itself it is instantly crushed by the overarching you know dread that's been building throughout and it reminds me very much of uh it reminds me very much of Tales from the Crypt. So you, if you remember Tales from the Crypt, in any of those episodes, at the very end, there there was never a happy ending. Unless you're a horror fan, then it was always a great ending. But the good guy never won. Whoever it was that was trying to do the right thing, it was never a fairy tale ending. Whatever the monster was, or the, the vampire, creature, killer, psycho, whatever it was, in the end, they always got the main character. Again, the main character was not the story. This story was about the psycho, or the killer, or the monster, or whatever, and them just getting theirs in the end. So, these stories echo that, and I think that's very cool. Anyway, I've blabbed on about that long enough. Let's go forward. Today we're going to be talking about P.L. McMillan's book, What Remains When the Stars Burn Out. It's a 2022 publication. It's available on her website, Amazon, Goodreads, all the places where those things are available. And it's a horror collection of short stories that range in tone, type, experience. There's 12 stories in there. In this uh, particular episode, I'm only going to talk about my top three with a couple honorable mentions, but all the stories are good. You should definitely check it out. They're also available if you go to our website. You can see where some of these have been put into other podcasts that do storytelling podcasts where they read the stories with all the cool 
theatrics, you know, of like a radio broadcast from a long time ago. So definitely go on there and check those out. My favorite, of course, of the entire book is the one that brought me to the party, The Whale Hunts. The second one, I guess I'd have to say, is uh, What the Ocean Gives and Takes Away. And last is Crimson Splash Skin. So if you have the book, you can you know look those up and check it out. But those are my top three. And after thinking about it, they all involve water and the ocean to some degree. So maybe that's uh, an issue I have, or maybe it's too much too much Lovecraft growing up. I don't know. Anyway, they all involve the ocean. So I don't know. Maybe I'm scared of water. I've never really been in the deep ocean. Maybe there's a reason for that. It's spooky as shit. So those are my top three. Second choices, if I had to do some follow-ups, are more love stories at heart, and I think that's why I like them. But they're love stories in a beautiful, hopeless, sort of, we're all going to die kind of way. Buzzkill, which is also on a podcast that just recently came out that was done really well. And Planet of the Hungry, and we'll talk about that one because it was really cool. Uh, the third tier, I guess, is... Gemini Syndrome and Polychromatic Screams, which are more sci-fi in nature. They're going to be very traditionally sci-fi. They deal with space and do have spaceships and all that kind of cool stuff. So um, there is a folk story in here. And the only reason I'm not going to talk about it is just because these other three, I think I just kind of connected with a little more. Love me some folk horror. It's called The Drought of Burham and or Burham, Burham. I don't know. It's The Drought of Burham. And very folky. And I really did like that story, but... This episode's going to go long enough, so I just talked about those ones. If you get the book, definitely check that one out. So, our first story. What remains when the stars burn out? And the first story, again, the one that I came to the dance with, The Whale Hunts. The Whale Hunts you can find on Nocturnal Transmissions Podcast, episode 121. If you've never heard of Nocturnal, a little side note here, if you haven't heard or listened to Nocturnal Transmissions Podcast, 100%. Look that up on Spotify. It's probably available somewhere else. Pretty sure he has a website, Patreon, and all this stuff. Uh, Kristen Holland is a voice actor that does a phenomenal job of of telling other people's stories and really giving them life. And I believe it's his narration of this story that really just kind of captivated me to use a buzzword um, with this story. I was able, you know, it had sounds and also with his ability to to do different voices and add in, you know, just really add characterization to these to these different uh, people that are in the story. So check that out. Uh, That's the episode. I always like to do some comparisons. So this story kind of reminds me of the blob in a way, a little bit of blob, a little bit of Moby Dick. And if you've seen Creepshow 2, there is a um, there's a scene of like a I don't know what you call it. it's like a boat raft thing where they call it a dock it's a dock out in the middle of this uh lake and there's this weird blob thing that comes out and kills these two people that are out there it's it it kind of reminds me of that so if you've ever seen that the boat raft scene the blob scene from creep show 2 then you're definitely going to know what I'm talking about if if you remember the blob like comes out or there's a, this real cool scene where the girl that's out there, she gets attacked by it or touched by it or whatever, and she rolls over and her skin and everything is all melted off and the boyfriend's like freaking out in his hot pants. And it's uh, it's a cool scene. Anyway, you'll see why all these things remind me of this story as we go on. So our story begins with a little bit of just kind of introducing you to this world that you're going to be in. We learned that the world had some type of cataclysmic event in 2071. They refer to New York as New York 2, 
the east coast of North America was hit with some kind of, you know, massive earthquake and it happened in the middle of the night with no type of warning or anything so you know the ocean underneath just opened up sucked in all this water caused this huge uh, wave flooding thing that just wrecked the coast and killed a ton of people and since that happened there was this black mass I guess goo thing out in the ocean that uh, just divided the ocean you would have this big blob and then outside of the blob it would be regular ocean they also discovered that all the ocean life died and as the ocean life started to die, this black mass continued to grow, and they call it a whale. And PL, if you're listening to this, also let me say this: uh, PL McMillan on she has a YouTube channel called PLM Talks, and like I said, also the uh, the podcast and all that stuff. And most of the time, she refers to herself as Plim. So if I can remember, I will try to refer to her as Plim throughout this podcast. So. Plim, if you're listening to this, it's called the whale hunts. The creature in this thing, as we go on, you will see, is certainly not a whale. I was confused throughout the whole thing because I was waiting for this big, super killer whale, you know, with a blowhole and stuff, and it just doesn't come up. And uh, the whale hunts, so I thought maybe with the tide, okay, I'm going to get sidetracked here, but it's called the whale hunts, and at first I thought maybe that means, like, the people are hunting the whale. They are going on whale hunts. However, after reading the story, I believe the title means that the whale is hunting. So it can be taken either way after we talk about it. Just see which one you think. I think the whale is hunting is definitely more of a a better interpretation of that. But I could be wrong. So anyway, we go back to it. This big black mass continued to grow out in the ocean as all the sea life uh, was starting to die. And of course, with the sea life dying and everything in the sea, it screwed up the whole ecosystem, which caused even more havoc on, you know, the states and everything like that. So uh, they call it a whale, but it could be a giant squid or something like that released. Some type of creature, some type of thing was released by this giant uh crack in the ocean floor and it came up and just started to just trash everything the black water and the regular water divide evenly so if you just kind of think about you know this what they're not like molded together you can actually see a distinct line where this thing starts and where the water stops so the whale hunts happen at night the this thing this dark stain off the coastline has been investigated by scientists and teams and all these different people they sent out to try to figure out what in the hell this thing is and none of them have returned everyone goes out there and they just there's no sign of them they just disappear off the face of the earth so we're introduced that's kind of the background of of what we get and we're introduced to a boat with a salty sea captain and some characters on the boat and here's where we start to get into uh, our main characters here we have henry Louie and Elena. The they they talk about as they're out there how the ocean has changed. It's got these inky black waters. The the midnight sea smells rotten and sour when they start to get closer to this black mass. Uh, Elaine, and here's some of the interesting stuff. So as far as writing goes, she puts in these little just little tiny comments, and it's just enough for you to really see who this person is, other than just like oh she was tall and beautiful with brown hair. So. For for example, Elaine says, there's a line in there that says she would have been beautiful, but her face was scarred from acid thrown on her when she ran off from her husband with their daughter. And Henry wonders if it hurt her to smile. 
so just that line right there, you know, it, it adds so much depth, I guess, to that character. It just really, uh, it puts a picture in your mind that is so much more definable and, uh, like HD, you know, other than just saying like, oh, she was a woman with brown hair. So it's these, it's these little nuggets throughout her stories that really just, just, they just draw me in. And the fact that the guy that was with her wondered if it hurt her to smile because these giant scars are on her face. I feel like that's a very natural reaction to any of us. You know, we all have these weird thoughts that aren't exactly, uh, you know, typical uh, when we're around people and things and places, and I think that's just one of those. It's just very realistic, I think. So Elaine, we find out, she tried to kill her husband with a hammer, and he lived, and since he lived, she wasn't sentenced to prison or jail or whatever it is for life. She actually had a sentence that she could work out and eventually be released. So this is where we find out that all the people on these on this ship that are doing the whale hunt are criminals, and that hunting the whale is actually now a part of your criminal sentence. So you can be sentenced to, I guess now, you know, for now I would compare it to community service. So like if you're out there picking trash up off the interstate or you have to volunteer at a, you know, a shelter or something like that as part of your community service, it's kind of, it seems to me that that's kind of what this is. This is only for people that have done violent, horrible crimes. So Elaine, her crime was killing her husband. And uh, we've, there's a captain on the boat, and he, he smokes a pipe. And again, like I said, this happened in, this time period is 2071. So I thought it was interesting that this captain still smokes a, in 2071. I mean, we're already, you know, vaping out of battery packs. So the fact that this dude's still smoking, in my mind, I imagine this giant wooden, like big S-curved, you know, music note looking pipe. Uh, they call him Captain Richardson. And I, I think that, I don't know if that was a play on words like Captain Dick because they talk about how the dude's sort of an asshole. And uh, he they say that he has a faded uh, wedding ring tan line and that they believe that he's just some rich guy who plays a character of a captain. But he is still in very real danger just like everyone else. So, you know, again, faded tan line. He's got an accent. He's acting like this salty captain guy. But with the faded tan line, you're like, oh, is this dude, you know, did he... He loses his wife and he's just out here because he's given up. You know, it's just these little details to where not only am I dealing with the fact that the world had this side of the world has almost ended because of this giant thing. But now I'm thinking about the relationship of, oh, this chick killed her husband. And I got this weird captain dude, Captain Dick, who's, uh, uh, you know, he's, he's missing a wedding ring. So what does that mean? You deal with all this stuff. And this is all just within like the first, you know, two or three pages of this story that I'm, I got all these things that I'm having to kind of mull over as I read the story. So they, like I said, we, we find out that they're all convicts. Um, there's two dozen, or wait, I'm sorry, two dozen hunts and a dozen trips for every murder. So uh, Crazy Louie is uh, one of the characters that's on the boat. And you can tell this dude's just a freaking nutbag. He's, he's a school shooter and... Um, they, they talk about how he'll end up doing these hunts until he dies. I mean, he'll be out here forever. He's, it's kind of an extended stay out there as far as him doing these whale hunts. So they're on the boat, and they come to the water's edge where the black, inky, uh, nasty stank water is, and they decide to stop there and eat because apparently if you're in the clear part of the water, 
nothing bad ever happens there. But as soon as you go over into the, you know, black muck stuff, that's where all the bad stuff happens. So they stop there on the edge to eat. And this, again, is just an opportunity for us to character build, but also to give us a little more information to this is where we're going to find out if we care about these people or not is the way I like to look at it. So, you know, obviously part of horror is, you know, something dangerous coming or something bad and wicked is going to happen. But if you don't care about the people in the story, then obviously you're not going to care if something bad happens to them. So this is a portion where we're going to get to know each other. They're going to break bread and eat. You're going to find out more about who's who and what's what, because we already know they're convicts. So now we got to figure out, well, what did they do to become convicts? Am I supposed to not like this person just because they've been convicted? You know, what is... What are the laws in 2071? Do, would I agree with the fact that this person is in prison and having to be sent off to, you know, hunt this giant, weird, uh, black ink whale beast monster thing? I don't know. Let's find out. We already know that Crazy Louie is a, a school shooter when they're stopped there. So we find that out. We also find out that the female that killed her husband has a daughter and she asks everyone to pray before they eat. So we find out that she's religious. Um, Crazy Louie doesn't pray, he just eats pickles and drinks the juice, which is just a funny scene in this whole thing, because uh, Henry, who I guess if we had to have a main character in this, it would be Henry, it's pretty much told from his perspective, but he asks him why he drinks the juice, and Louie says he does it because it, it'll pickle him from the inside, and that the whale doesn't like the taste of pickle juice, so you know you can just tell this guy's a nut. Also while they're eating, uh, Elaine... Or Elena gives shows Henry a picture that her daughter colored her with crayons and stuff. So you know you you find out she has a daughter that she loves her. She loves her kids. Um, you find out that Elaine killed her husband because he was abusive and all this stuff, or she attempted to kill him because of his abuse, and she just couldn't stand it anymore and the abuse of her child and stuff. So you know, like I, like I said, we're starting to build profiles on these people, emotional profiles. Uh, as they're eating, one of them notices that the the black part of the sea doesn't reflect light. And again, that's just a little nugget of detail to just kind of up the creep factor of what they're about to get into. Uh, while they're eating and, and talking about what they're going to do and all that, and they end up, uh, I guess, kind of getting a little further into, they actually get into the black part of the sea, and all of a sudden... The, the action starts. They get the, the boat gets rocked. The captain gets thrown overboard immediately. So he's out. Uh, there's a lot of cool stuff in there about him, too. I, di I didn't mention it because this episode is going to uh, last a little while. But he gets thrown overboard. There's a... Uh... Oh, Henry. Let me tell you about Henry. So Henry, he's on there. And this whole time, as he's, like I said, it's kind of coming from his point of view. You're wondering what his deal is. Well, you finally find, find out at some point in the story that he forgot to do something at the plant that he worked at which caused an explosion and 60 people died and so you know he's not necessarily it was negligence it not necessarily that he murdered someone like these other people his was just the crime of negligence but that negligence led to the death of more people than these other people killed so again you know it's this it's this emotional tear back and forth of like oh i don't know do i like this person or not like this person do i care if they live or die and Again, that is great storytelling. It's these little facts that craft, you know, the emotional part of you as the reader. All right, so boat gets gets slapped. Captain goes overboard. Everyone's starting to freak out. You know, they're going to go and man these harpoon guns and all this stuff. And all of a sudden, a black tentacle comes out and 
uh, smashes Crazy Louie, you know, while all this stuff is going on. And again, it's a tentacle. So the title says a whale. Whales don't have tentacles. The tentacle came out. I was like, what are we dealing with here? And, like, you know, it just... So anyway, tentacle comes out, smashes Crazy Louie, and uh, there's beautiful, you know, that uh, macabre imagery when the tentacle comes down and hits Louie, where Plim talks about Louie's mist of blood spray hitting Henry in the mouth. And for a moment, Henry thinking he tasted... Uh, pickle juice Jesus Christ. At, with, in the blood that hit his mouth you know just again just a little tiny detail in there that called back to something earlier in the story and it, again it's a weird thought that I think you know like I said as, as a human person that even when you know weird stuff is happening or you know you think you're supposed to feel or act a certain way when a certain thing is happening but this is a very real thing I think even if your life was it is absolute peril and someone's blood hits you in the mouth for a split second, somewhere back in your lizard brain, you'd be like, that kind of tastes like pickle juice. So I thought it was a very cool part of the story, these little tiny details that they don't seem uh, forced or anything. They're very natural and quick enough to where you just kind of digest it and move the story on. And um, they help. They just kind of help really flesh out the story and give it that structure and detail that, uh, I don't know, just makes it that much more enjoyable so tentacle comes out and then the whale thing rises out of the water lifting the ship and it's moving the whole ship and you realize that this whole black mass gooey thing which takes up like almost a whole coastline I mean this thing is massive they talk about it in the story but it ends up lifting the ship and it's got like eyeballs and shit all over it tentacles coming all out of it there's a part where they say that when the where she says when the whale comes out of the water and it's uh, it's a great meaty pop as the eye opens. I thought that was a really cool line in there. So Elena gets uh, her back broken and yanked out of the boat at some point when all this chaos is going on. Another tentacle comes on uh, and it pulls her. I think in this scene, like it pulls her through some railing on the side of the boat, so she's bent backwards over this railing which is really sick and her back just gets snapped and the thing coils around her and just yanks her out into the ocean so now you know that's three people iced right away you know so this thing is not playing around it just comes in and handles business this this whale creature beast all right so it ends up uh it, it ends up smashing the ship uh it it has all these tentacles and there's a, a part where like I said, multiple eyes come out of the water. It has all these tentacles and it ends up combining into one. Smashes the uh, the ship and forces our only remaining person, Henry, into the black part of the ocean. Now, once he gets hit into this black part of the ocean, again, we don't know what this is. Is this just something that the, the whale causes the ocean to look that way? Or is all of this part of his or its, you know, being... He gets knocked into the black part of the ocean, and as soon as he gets in there, he says he can feel it. It's, it's squeezing him. It's sucking him in to further and deeper into this, uh, this blackness and this dark. So uh, he notices there's a, a, a buoy or something out there that he tries to swim to. He's got a little bit of hope. He swims out to this buoy. He doesn't know what he's going to do when he gets there. He just knows that the buoy is in clean water, and if, at least if he can get there, he'll have some type of safety because the the prisoner or, or whatever that sends the boat out will know that these people haven't returned and they'll send out a rescue party or someone to come in 
and save him. So he starts swimming towards this buoy, and there's, you know, this great imagery of him just swimming through this, you know, as thick as sand type black muck to try to get out of it. And this thing's squeezing the air out of his lungs, and, and he's, you know, almost not going to make it, but he, he has just enough push to, to where you know he's going to make it. So then this really cool thing happens that right as soon as he kind of crests into the clean water and, you know, he's he's good to go, what happens? He hears Elena. And what is she doing? She's screaming from the blackness, right? And he's like, holy shit, she's still alive. Now remember, he's already talked to her about why she's there. And he feels bad because, you know, she he kind of feels like she's already justified in what she did. And he doesn't feel like he's, you know, neither one of them are crazy Louie. And so I think he had that attachment. Plus... She showed him the kids coloring, you know, page or whatever. So he hears her calling for him. And I guess whether it's out of guilt or sense of, you know, responsibility that he's alive, like he wants to turn around and try to save her. You know, he even says, like, he could just leave her. But after all this horrible stuff and, you know, he just feels guilty. He's decided he's going to try to... And he's already, like, exhausted at this point. But he sees her waving in the water. So he can actually see her struggling out there. And he decides he's going to swim back there for her and try to save her. And he, he goes back into the fray. He reaches her where she was waving in the water. And he realizes that, like, half of her body, her skin, and all this stuff is disintegrated. And, you know, she's she's obviously dead. He, he realizes once he gets back to her, she's dead. And he notices that the little tentacles that are coming out of this whale thing have wrapped around her vocal cords and they're vibrating. And uh, that's where the voice was coming from. So now we have another layer of this weird, monstrous beast that he can actually... And that reminds me of a movie, I don't remember if I said it earlier, The Ruins, I believe it's called The Ruins, where they go to this temple in South America somewhere, in Mexico or something, and the plants have learned how to mimic you know, like a cell phone and, and human speech, but they the plants grow off the blood of humans, and there's a scene where, like, the phone is ringing, but it's actually the plant vibrating. Anyway, I'm getting sidetracked. But if you've seen it, that's also a cool movie. Check it out. The ending of that was the shit. I love that movie. So anyway, he goes back and he tries to save her. He realizes that he's been fooled by this giant uh, musty beast, and uh, he says he can feel the the tendrils and stuff start to wrap around him and it's almost like a jellyfish because he says they're stinging him and they're melting his skin and all this and there's a final scene of him being dragged underwater and pulled underwater as all this is happening and he opens his eyes to see the sunset right before they're melted out of his face and also while he's doing this he's clutching elena's hands well her bone her bony hand to his chest and I mean, just that little detail at the end there. You know, he could be like, oh, you know, Plim could have just said, you know, the monster got him and it was already cool enough. But she adds just this little detail of him seeing the sun, that sunset right before his eyeball explodes out of his head and that he's clutching her bone hand to his chest. It's just so good. It's just that little bit of, you know, maybe I just like a little more uh, emotional uh, sustenance in my stories. But it's just these little tiny details that were not necessary whatsoever to make it a, a, a horror you know, tail that just makes it that much more uh, meaty. And I love it. And so that's the end of that. And he gets sucked under. And uh, I just want to eat this story with a bowl of ice, like a bowl of ice cream, man. I'm telling you, listen to it on the, the Nocturnal Transmissions podcast. You'll see exactly what I'm talking about. It will definitely, um, 
you know, get your palette ready for some more uh, Plim, and you can get on there and, and get her books online, all that. But I'm hoping that you can see from this story, the the horror in the story to me, and I think why I like it so much is, for one, we have people that we feel like are unjustly Im- imprisoned, you know, uh, one was a, a, a battered spouse. The other was a guy that just, you know, it was an accident or whatever. But yet they're put in these situations to whatever the crime laws and all that stuff are, where they're having to hunt some kind of ridiculous monster that is most certainly going to kill them if they have to encounter it. So we're dealing with that kind of unfairness, you know, that that kind of makes you sick to your stomach. You know, no one wants to see someone, you know, put to death that was innocent or that, you know, we kind of feel like maybe it might have been justified some way, one way or the other, whatever. And then, of course, we're dealing with the fact that, you know, the ocean is is uh, our whole uh, the, the ocean, the coastline, all this stuff's been destroyed. All these people have died. We've had this huge uh, world changing event. And then now you have the monster that's involved. And so, like I said, it just really goes between the emotional side of things and then just the straight, you know, terror of being scared of something. But then also at the end, uh, the scene where Henry and Elena are, yeah, the scene where he goes back to save her. And to me, that feels like another reason why that is scary because you feel like he's just trying to do the right thing and be a good dude. Like he's just saying, hey, there's this person that's in trouble you know, maybe I can still save her. I don't have to, you know, he could have just went and got up on the buoy and saved himself and let her, you know, she was already dead, but he didn't know that. He could just let her perish out there and rot and get melted alive by this giant beast. You know, she, he saw her back break. So why I thought she was still alive, I don't know, you know, who knows, but he, uh, I, I think that's another part of it too. Like, like I said, these, the, the monster and all this kind of stuff and these type of stories like this, whether you want to say Tales from the Crypt, H.P. Lovecraft, really Scott, whatever, is the monster that you're dealing with doesn't give a shit that you're a good dude. It just, it's going to use that, as a matter of fact, to bring you in uh, to kill you. So, you know, and the monster's just doing what the monster does. It's not about good and evil and right and wrong. It's just the monster existing and doing what it does. And it doesn't care about your, uh, social norms and and what it is that you believe in and all this stuff. So I think that's another part of not only this story, but uh, a lot of her other stories that really um, drive home that terror. You're just dealing with a bunch of different layers of stuff to feel weird about. (laughs) So, all right. So uh, the next story we're going to talk about is that which the ocean gives and takes away. This is also on Nocturnal Transmissions podcast episode 77. So check that one out. Again, this one involves the ocean, but not in the same way. It just kind of takes place on the ocean, but it's really kind of on the shoreline. And to compare it to other stuff that I've seen and and, and read before, there was a Stephen King story in, I believe it was in one of his short story compilation books, and I don't remember which one, but all I remember is that there was this car that was parked outside of this uh, abandoned building, and it would, if you touched it, it would suck you in and then like a dent would pop, like it would make the, it, they just made it a point in the story to say it would pop back out. Like once it sucked you in, it made this weird pop sound. And this story sort of reminds me of that. Um, and then after it's like, after the car eats all these people, it just dis- it just shoots back up in the sky or some shit. So I don't know. But when I looked it up, all I could find was a short story called Mile 81 and or a story called Mile 81. I don't know if that's it or not. If, if you know, let me know in the comments if you know which story I'm talking about or if you have some way I can reference it. But 
I just remember I read it in a book of short stories, like his uh, Bizarre Bad Dreams book. I don't know if that's the one it was in, but I'm just saying for an example, that's the kind of book that I found in him. I don't know. Uh, I just remember there was like a kid that got drunk in there and passed out, and that's then the car showed up. I don't know. Anywho, also this story reminds me of a Jim Carrey movie, Eternal Sunshine of a Spotless Mind. If you haven't seen that movie, it's not necessarily horror. It's uh, it's it's an emotional movie. I mean, it's it's horribly. It's about emotions that are hard to deal with. If you want to count that as horror, I don't know. I watched it and I cried like a fucking baby in that movie because if you've uh, I don't know if you if you've ever had your if you've ever loved somebody and then like it just didn't work out and then you felt like your heart got ripped out of your chest and you just wanted to lay down in a hole for the next ten years. That's kind of what and you just wanted to forget, you know. That's kind of what that movie's about. It's really good, you know. Jim Carrey's not my favorite actor when it comes to uh, like dramatic roles, but it's only because he's just been the funny guy for so long. It's not necessarily that he's a bad actor. It's just that it's hard to see, not hear his other characters' voices when he's acting throughout this crazy sad movie, though. And um, check it out. And this also has a little sprinkle of some The Matrix in there, I guess, if you wanna. It's got a little bit of the matrix in there. You'll see. You'll see. So, that which the ocean gives and takes away. This story is... Uh, I'll, I'll kind of keep it simple. There's a boat that shows up on the shore somewhere and no one knows where it came from. It just showed up. And uh, it's called the HMS Drake is what's on the side of the boat. And it sunk in 1920 and now it's back. And it's on the shore, and no one knows what the deal is with it. It's all rusted out and crazy. They send some people in to kind of check it out and see what it's all about. And what happens? The people disappear. They never come back. And those that do manage to come out say that those that stayed on the boat did so because they chose to stay there. Now, remember, there's not. this isn't a cruise line. There's no food or anything on there. They just disappear. They go in there and disappear. And the people that do manage to make it out can't really describe what in the world has gone on in there, but other than saying that the people chose to stay. Uh, the fact that you give this, you know, the the boat a name, I think kind of instantly, uh, it, it legitimizes the, the mystery. When you give the boat a name, you say that there's scientists and cops and doctors and uh, biologists and all this stuff that have gone inside and not many of them returned. You know, it's just kind of a, again, one of those little details that adds a little more uh, realism to the story other than just being some kind of, you know, fantasy story. So, uh, they say, uh, some of the people that came out say wild shit about like voices and they're hearing voices and living things inside. And those who, those who went in there stayed with the things that are living. So, you know, we're already building this mystery as you're reading this, this is just the first page or two. And you're like, I've got to know what's going on inside this boat. But again, building dread, you just heard that if you go in there there's a high chance that you're not going to want to come out and it's going to be because you wanted to stay. Why am I going to want to stay? I don't know. Living creatures. We're going to find out. So uh, they tried to move this thing once all these people started disappearing. They tried to get it off the coast because if it's there on the coast, of course, everyone and their mom's going to show up, try to get in this thing, take a selfie, do a YouTube video or whatever, and it is immovable. They've tried everything. They can't get this thing off the shore. They can't pull it back into the water. There's nothing that they can do to move it and they decide to send in one last team to do a little bit of research find out what they can and if they can't figure anything else out they're just going to blow this thing out of the water and our main character in this is going to be 
uh, a female biologist that's going to go in, or I'm sorry, virologist. She's a virologist. So she wants to go in and see if maybe there's some type of weird sea virus that's come up with this thing that's causing this hysteria and causing these people to lose their minds or die or whatever it is inside of there. And that's why she's gone up there. There's a line in there. Let's see. Notable line that I liked was the Drake was haggard and the sea had eaten holes away in the hole, letting in the pathetic drizzle that fell from steel skies. Plim's descriptions of skylines and sunsets and all this stuff are just so a lot of times when she writes, especially her descriptions of the places of where she's at, are very uh, poetic's a cheesy word to, to to use here, but they're uh, they're almost li- uh, lyrical, I guess, and and I think that's maybe another reason why I connect with this. The as you the readability of the way she writes it, it's just lyrical in a sense that it just kind of flows light on a breeze. It's easy to understand, and uh, it's not overly descriptive to the point that it's annoying and it's not it, it doesn't leave a whole lot of stuff to get see that's one thing about hp lovecraft that i that i'll say that i don't like is just that a lot of times he just like the absence of description is supposed to be the tear like oh i i, I you know my words my eyes couldn't look upon it and all this other stuff you know words cannot describe what this thing was you know sometimes you got to give us a little something to work with i understand the imagination is more you know you can you can create more terror in there than you can if you just give it to me straight. But I got I gotta have something to go on, right? I gotta have a reference point. So anyway, okay. So um, they they go into this and uh, we find out that this uh, virologist before she goes in, because you know why would anybody want to do this? It's could be a suicide mission. You find out that she's suffering from grief from some kind of incident. So Plum does this uh, beautiful thing in her writing where she foreshadows, or I guess pre-shadows? Are are those the same thing? It's like giving you a little, like you know that some kind of big thing has taken place, but that's all you know, that it was a big deal. And then she's not going to tell you what that is until later when something bad's about to happen. And now you find out a little more about this person right before they get, you know, put on ice. So, um, it gives it gives you just enough information to know that something is there, and uh, it talks about this event that and, and you're just left to guess. You just kind of have to guess of okay, this person has something that's you know, a, this person's got a little more depth to them than the rest of these people. They got a little more of a reason to be there, and we don't know what it is. It could be good, it could be bad, it could be malicious. We don't know. But now we have to worry about that as we go throughout the story. How is this going to come into play? As we go further in, on top of us having to deal with this weird ship that is making people disappear. So again, it's just that building of dread, that that layer on layer of horror and terror and things for us to worry about as we walk through this story. Um, I notice in this story, more than the others, there's a whole lot of alliteration. I don't know the timeline of these stories or when they were published. So these 12 stories in this book all come from her previous publications on in magazines and um, other... Uh, short story books where they've put a bunch where they put a bunch together and stuff so uh that that's where all these come from and she'd said in an interview that a bunch of people kept asking her where they could find these stories well you know 12 stories and most of them are all in in different places whether online or in book form so she decided to just put them all together and again like i said it's a great portfolio of her work to be introduced to plim and and how she writes and what she writes about and all that so she put them all in this book and that's why they're all there so uh they decide they're going to blow this thing up. 
if they can't figure out what's going on, this team of scientists, virologists, biologists, and a couple of, uh, you know, hardcore SEAL team guys go in. And as soon as they get inside the boat, they see that it's covered in these, like, luminescent veins. And that they're warm, and they almost seem to vibrate, and you can almost hear it. It's like an audible vibration that you can hear. And the whole ship on the inside is just covered in these things. Uh, the, the team decides to spread out. In, in the story, you kind of get an idea that they're like in a long hallway and there's all these doors on the side. And they decide to spread out into these different cabins to see what they can find. And even as soon as they get inside, it, it's almost instant that you can tell that there's a shift in their attitudes and what they're saying and, and how they're feeling inside this place. So they already seem entranced, I guess, kind of hypnotized by this place once they're inside. Uh, one guy, I mean, right off the bat, as they start splitting off into these rooms and, you know, uh, talking about what's going on inside, one dude just bolts and, like, jumps right off the railing onto the beach, just commits suicide, just like that, boom. Now, our main, our main character notices that when this guy just runs screaming like a raving lunatic and jumps off the edge to kill himself, that no one comes out of their room. I don't remember how many people are in the team, let's just say five. And they all go into these separate rooms, and no one reacts. No one comes out, no one's checking on him, no one's doing anything. And, I mean, for the most part, she's not either, really, other than just noticing that it's happened. And then she realizes that one of the rooms is calling to her. Like, she can hear it, I guess, in her mind or whatever, these throbbing veins that are all over the, sh the ship. She's being called to a room. So she goes into the room, and she finally is, she gets the experience that everyone else is getting in there, which is being hypnotized and talk to uh you know like through your mind by all these weird uh veins that are inside these rooms so it kind of reminds me of uh, with going with the ocean theme here just think about it when you're the the deep dark you know marianas trench type parts of the ocean where these fish have these little light bulbs or whatever that lure in other fish so you know and they look scary scary as shit and they have these big-ass teeth, but then they have this little tiny light bulb, and it says it attracts all the fish because they see it, and they're like, ooh, you know, glowy, shiny thing, or maybe they think it's food. Who knows what they think it is, but you know they like it so much that they've decided to unabashedly, just like with, with no reservation whatsoever, just go up to this random light. And I feel like in this story, as I was reading, I kind of got that feeling that this ship, or, you know, whatever it is disguising itself as a ship, is that's kind of what it does, is, is it's luring you in with this light only to be this horrible thing that's gonna eat you up so let's see what happens right she goes into the room she's being communicated with by this uh I, I who knows what it is whatever the ship is this alien thing this thing that is alive and it's talking to her in not some weird alien voice but just in uh in her own voice so she sees she can see, I can't remember if she sees it for herself or in her mind or whatever, but that the veins of the ship, the other people that she was with, they're in these rooms and they're all just laying down, letting these veins kind of creep up to them and actually insert themselves into their body. So again, like I said, very Matrix-like that they're getting hooked up to these tubes and essentially they're feeding off the life force of the people that lay down. And she's wondering, like, why aren't they fighting? You know, it must be drugging them somehow. It must be doing something to where they're not reacting at all. They're just laying down and giving themselves to this uh, this entity. So she is, uh, she's in the room. She's being talked to telepathically by this, by these weird glowing vein things that are all over. 
and the ship starts sending her images of her and her husband. And this is where we find out that her husband was murdered and, you know, they were happy together or whatever. So he ends up getting murdered and she wants to more than anything. She's depressed and she's sad and she wants to be back with her husband. And the ship is trying to offer her uh, an opportunity you know, to go back to that place and to live with her husband and be happy again. It starts sending her images of her husband and images of them being together and her being happy and just all those feelings that existed before, you know, that before that event happened and, you know, her life just went to a, a totally different place. And I'll fast forward a little bit. She ends up giving herself to this thing. She lays down, she lets it intertwine, and it, it talks a lot about how that's done and how she feels as it's happening. And this is where you find out this is why all these people decide to give their self to the ship. Because the ship is offering them some type of salvation or peace from, you know, whatever cruel existence that they currently live in. Whatever sadness it is that they carry around with them. This ship offers to uh, to take it away. And, and, you know, take away. There's no sad endings if you give yourself to the ship. And, you know, I think the, the part for me with this, not only was this story just really... Uh, well written and just as you read it it just feels uh it's like i said it's just i don't know how else to describe it other than say it's lyrical as you read it it's very um lyrical as you read it and but this whole concept of would you give yourself to this crazy like whatever this thing is for essentially what to you would be a lifetime of happiness so because in your mind it's a lifetime you know like i said the matrix and all this other stuff you have no idea you know, like the guy in the Matrix that gave himself back to the Matrix. You know, he just says, I, I don't want to live in this real world. It fucking sucks. I'd rather live back here where I don't know anything and life just goes on and I'm happy. So this ship kind of offers the same thing. And I think you could draw a parallel to maybe, uh, you know, religions or cults or whatever you want to call them. These other things, these people, these places that offer salvation, they just say you have to give yourself to us. Now, the ship is an extreme version because your body is there and you're, you know, you're, I don't know, you assume it's just going to suck all your life out of you until you die. But, I mean, the same could be said for here with these other places where they control your life with different rules and, and restrictions and whatever to say this is how we are going to find our eternal happiness. And like I said, that can apply to anything, not just religion, uh, but other things that people decide to dedicate their lives to. So, for me, that was the part of this story. That was the... I don't know. The the horror part obviously is there and it's it's uh it's that cosmic kind of eldritch horror if you want to talk about it that way. I think it might even use that term. No, maybe it doesn't use it in this story. It's a different one. But uh it is kind of that type of terror, but that choice that's having to be made and thinking about that and would you do that? I mean, have you lost someone? Have you suffered great grief in your life? And if some weird, strange alien thing came around was just like, "Hey man, pain-free. I'll take all that away. Live the rest of your life however you want." Uh, you remember that Leonardo DiCaprio film, Inception? I don't remember when it came out, but it was about dreams and you can be lost and live eternally in your dreams and all this. It, it reminded me of a lot of that and the ending scene to that movie, if you've ever seen it. So, yeah, she gives herself up to the ship and she wakes up and she's with her husband and that's it. Again, very much like that Eternal Sunshine movie, if you've ever seen it. And then what happens? They decide uh, the guy that jumped off the boat... Uh, he's still alive. So we find out at the end of this thing, he's still alive. I mean, he's all jacked up and broken up, but he's alive. He tells everyone what's what happened, and they decide they're going to blow this thing out of the water. And when they come back to do that or whatever, 
the boat's gone. It's just disappeared. There's no sign of it or whatever. And that's the end of the story. Again, read it. It's a lot better than the way I describe it, but I just wanted to talk about kind of the, t- the, the, the tone and the subject matter of this thing and why I think it is a good example of Plim's writings and, and how she uses human emotion and guilt and sadness and all this stuff to play into her horror and her writings in a way that's uh, very natural and, and appeals to not only myself, but I'm sure a lot of other readers as well. Fun fact, the HMS Drake, I decided to Google it to see if it's a real ship. It is. It's a real ship from 1903 that was sunk by a German submarine, and it lies between Ireland and the UK about 50 feet underwater. Now, a lot of stuff has happened to it since I read that. You can go Google that if you want. I don't know if she meant for this to be a real ship or just kind of look that name up online or whatever, if it has anything to do with the story. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. But it doesn't have anything to do with the plot. So there you go. All right, last story we're going to talk about, or that we're going to uh, talk about the whole story, is Crimson Splash Skin. Uh, it has the ocean in it, but it is not an ocean story. It just has an event that uh, occurs in the ocean. So Crimson Splash Skin is... It's a story about a... Our, our main character in this story is going to be a girl by the name of Marnie, and she goes out to this this big tentacle, weird, uh, jack-in-the-beanstalk-style thing has grown up out of the ocean. And she goes over there and makes contact with it, and a bunch of weird stuff happens. So that's kind of the... That's the gist. But I just really liked the ending in this story, and it's very much like another Creepshow episode, the one that had Stephen King in it, where he touches this asteroid thing, and uh, he turns into this big plant and then blows his head off with a shotgun at the end. You remember that one? I bet you do. It's really fucking cool. Anyway, it's kind of got uh, it, that that style. Not not that style, but it, it's it it's runs along in the same vein. And uh, I, I just I guess the thing about this story too, and the uh, like the other two, it it played with the reader's emotions quite a bit. It just had a lot of stuff going on. Um, emotionally on top of this, you know, world ending thing that's occurring as well. And so how funny that the world would be ending, but you would be thinking about, you know, your marriage or your relationship or, you know, some other type of trivial thing at the moment, given all the other crazy stuff that's going on. So yeah, Crimson Splash Skin, let's get into it. The cool thing about this one is within the first, I mean, within like the first four sentences, we can already understand the the breadth of the relationship between Marnie and Kyle. So we start out with Marnie. I said our main character Kyle is a guy that's with her, and we understand that this is they're they're on the ocean, and they're about to swim out, and they're talking about this giant tentacle thing that's like 40, 60 feet out of the ocean, and there's all these military crafts around it watching it. It's nighttime, and so and we understand that they have had some type of relationship in the past. You know, she's talking about you know, how he looks and all this, and, you know, he's kind of being flirty with her or whatever. And she makes mention of how easy she would give herself to him, and he's the one that got away, but she feels bad because she has this very safe and stable relationship at home. And so, again, you know, we're thinking about our relationship, but yet there's this giant tentacle uh, growth thing out in the middle of the ocean, and we're about to bypass a bunch of military security to go check it out. But again, it doesn't seem out of place. Just the way it plays out is they're just getting ready, and these are her random inside thoughts, you know, that are that are bouncing around her head as she's dealing with this. And I think that is so 
realistic. I mean, it's just, it's so realistic to just, if you've ever been in a tense situation, you had a random thought, you know, or it's like having a serious conversation and then someone rips a big ass fart. You're just like, that's fucking random, but it's funny. You know, it's just, it's not out of place. I don't know if that was a good, I don't know if that was a good explanation. Hopefully you understand what I'm saying. But the reason I bring this up is because, you know, here's what Plim does in her horror, to me anyway, she kind of just cracks you open in a way that, uh, with these emotions that are very real and that anyone who has ever, you know, loved anyone or been in a type of situation where they've, uh, you know, felt guilty about something or vulnerable or regretted something in their life. And it just, it, it taps into those emotions. So it's almost like it makes a, a pinhole in your psyche so that, okay, now that I've got a little wormhole there, I can shove my horror into that hole and just let it fester and work its way throughout your body and scare the shit out of you. And that's the, that's the storytelling. It's, uh, I feel like that's what all her stories do, and that's why I like the emotional side of it. You know, it, a, a slasher film, uh, entertaining. Uh, something where everything is just spoon-fed to me, and I don't have to think a lot about it, entertaining. I also like stories, you know, like mysteries or whatever, and I might have to think a little more about this kind of stuff. But again, these things, hers is just so much more, uh, I guess, I hate to use the fucking word emotional again, but it just dives into those parts of us, like I said, that have impacted everyone at some point in their life, if you've lived any kind of life. And it's parts that we guard from everyone, our family, our friends. There's things about people we don't want to know, times when we were hurt or happy or whatever. And there are deep, dark secrets. Well, when these characters talk about them, it takes us back to that place. And that's what opens up that guard of yours to let this horror in to sit and really go to work. So uh, that's what I like that. So... The, they're on the ocean there, and they're going to swim out on surfboards towards this giant beanstalk tentacle thing. I keep calling it that because it's a it winds up being a, a plant, sort of, but it's not. You'll see. Uh, she describes a, a watery... This is another one of the, just the, the skyline type of descriptions. I don't like this line. She says, Plim says, A watery light poured down from the bloated moon and illuminated the aberration in front of me. So the part of me that I like this is the watery light poured down from the bloated moon. That's just a fucking cool line, man. I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, so they swim out here to this thing, and it you discover that it's a crimson spire, like a like a muscle or a tentacle or a or a stalk or something. It's got veins. It's got holes in it. Um, it's got all these big bulbs on it, and. Kyle, I think, is the one that mentions that they that he thinks maybe it was like some seeds that came out of an asteroid that hit the ocean so this big asteroid came down and we believe in as the reader now that it had some kind of weird seeds in it and that seed planted itself in the ocean again we're in the ocean so who knows how fucking deep it is so even though this thing this this thing is sticking like 40 feet out of the water we got to understand it's probably 100 feet under the water who knows well while they're over there uh, checking it out. Marnie's there because she's a, a reporter and she's wanting to take pictures and, you know, win a Pulitzer and all this kind of, I think that's what reporters win. I don't know. And wanting to take pictures. That's the whole reason she's out there. She has Kyle to help her because of, for whatever reason, I can't remember, but he's the one that gets her out there. And, uh, while she's there taking pictures of it, a big wave comes and it pushes her into this giant thing. And so she goes to brace herself on it. And when she does, her hand sinks into it. Well, she goes into this kind of panic mode because she feels like it's biting down on her. And, again, we don't know that this thing is sentient or 
or an animal of any type. But once her hand is in there, she says it feels like there's teeth chomping down on her arm. And there's a cool part where it says the teeth feel like they're as big as watermelons. So the imagery on that was just, I don't know, I thought that was pretty cool. So uh, they get her out of there. Uh, Kyle ends up helping her uh, pull her arm out. Her, her arm is fine, but she said it's burning like it's on fire and all this stuff. But the looks of it, the arm is the arm is just fine. It's not like all chewed up or, you know, meaty or nothing like that. They drive back to the hotel and there's a moment in the car where, again, Marnie's kind of wrestling with this thing because her and Kyle have had a relationship in the past and apparently it was like, you know, white, one of those wild and crazy young white hot fire relationships, you know, where you're just like partying and screwing or doing whatever. I don't know. It talks about it in the book. You can get in there. But he... I guess she says something or whatever about maybe coming up to her room or something and he grabs her hand and he's like, you know, I, you know, I can't do that. You know, he's got a kid and a wife and all this stuff. So he grabs her hand. She pulls the hand away. It's the hand that got chomped by the monster tentacle thing. And she just bolts on him. She doesn't say shit. She gets out of the car, storms up to her room. And then that's the end of it. And then it also talks about while she's in there, she's, you know, part of her was hope and she hated herself for hoping that he would follow her up in there. And she was, mad at herself for thinking that he would do that and leave his wife and kids for all this kind of stuff. And again, it's a part of the story that didn't need to exist, but I think it added to this character of kind of her mindset and where she's at and what she thinks and all this, because you, you know, me, I'm feeling bad for, for for her. And at the end of the story, I still feel, feel bad for like what's happening to her, but she makes a lot of decisions too, that are very, uh, selfish and, and, and self-serving again. So, you know, me as the reader, I'm trying to figure out like, you know, how am I supposed to feel? Do I got to give a shit if this person dies or lives? You know, what about Kai? Do I care about him? I don't know. So again, we're, we're, we're back and forth on those different emotions as we go through the story. So Marnie goes back to the airport and, you know, they're done with this whole scenario. She got her some pictures. She goes back to the airport to meet her wife. Her wife is sitting there or, I believe it's her girlfriend in the story. Carmen. I believe it is her girlfriend. So anyway, she goes back. Carmen's waiting for her at the airport. And of course, Carmen has like her favorite flowers, her favorite coffee drink. She's so excited that she's back. And so this is one of those things where, you know, you're like, oh, Marnie, you asshole. You know, here you got this person that cares about you and loves waiting for you, literally waiting for you, you know, to get home and all this kind of stuff. And she had all these other thoughts. But also... It said in the story, you know, she felt bad about this stuff in the first place. And again, I think these are very real human reactions that people have. And if you've ever been in that place, whether you were Kyle in this scenario or Marnie or or, or Carmen, these are all real um, emotions that people deal with when stuff like this happens. Again, the the guilt stuff, the vulnerability and all that kind of stuff. So uh, she goes back. Uh, she's talking to Carmen about what happened. And you also find out in this scenario that not only did she have all these doubts about uh, whether or not she wanted to, you know, cheat on her girlfriend or whatever like that, but you also find out that she has cheated in the past. So it doesn't say with who, I don't think it was with Kyle, but you, you find out that Marnie's cheated on Carmen in the past and that's why Carmen has some trust issues. So when they get back to the, to their apartment, you know, they, she, she asked about Kyle and if he was there and of course Marnie lies and says, no, he wasn't there, but I got the pictures and, you know, it's going to do all this great stuff for us, right? So Marnie immediately notices that she's getting, like, her arms on fire when they get back. She's got these red, rashy, pimply kind of things that are starting to grow up her arm and onto her chest. 
and she sends out the pictures to her um her her boss or whatever to to have him review those things and then she starts getting real paranoid you know uh she, she starts getting super paranoid about whether or not the the government is going to start listening to her because you know after all she went to some government protected weird alien thing and was taking pictures and now she sent them across the internet to her boss so she starts getting paranoid about like her phone and her emails and all this on top of arguing with Carmen about whether or not Kyle was there and now this rash is starting to grow on her and we don't know what that's all about so the next I believe it's either the next day or later that night I believe it's the next day she she discovers that the the pimpling and the redness and all that has gotten a lot worse and not only that but her skin is starting to dry out in a way that is really painful and cracking and the the descriptions of this part of how her body is starting to break down and dry out are really really good that's another part that i loved about this story about just how this thing was starting to um you know degrade her body and and dry it out really great imagery in there so she gets a phone call from kyle and kyle is flipping out right so the hand that he grabbed of hers in the truck uh it started to get all red and stuff, whatever. Well, then he says, not only that, he says, but he's got kids and his wife at home and a baby. So he starts talking about the baby's all red and rashy and he doesn't understand what's happening. And he's asking her, hey, have you noticed any symptoms or anything? Is anything wrong with you? And of course she lies and says no. And he says, you know, I'm taking the baby to the hospital. I think you should go get checked out too. And as the day progresses, he's like blowing her phone up trying to find out. So in your mind, you, you're just left to wonder like what in the fuck is happening to this baby you know that's what i'm worried about poor little baby's got some kind of weird alien uh vine creature you know watermelon teeth thing growing on him i don't know but i'm worried about the kid and you know marnie is more and more as much as i feel bad for her situation i'm like quit being a piece of shit marnie you tell these people what's going on but we don't know if the sickness is kind of messed with her brain too because she's starting to show signs of of extreme paranoia and all this other all these other issues that are coming along with this crimson rash that came from this crimson vine thing that's growing out of the water. So Carmen comes home and she says she doesn't feel good. And Carmen's like, you know, I've kind of felt like I've had a fever all day or whatever. But she says she comes home from work and holy shit, she works with kids. I think she's like a school teacher or something like that. So again, Plim is throwing the kids at us like, hey, we're killing, we're killing everybody. Everyone's getting it. All right. The, the, good, the good guy, the good girl, the bad girl, the kids everybody's getting some of this crimson on them, right? And so you, as the reader, are like, oh my gosh, what kind of, you know, we're looking to see what happens to Marnie because that undoubtedly is what is going to happen to all these other people. So you might be asking, how did Carmen get, uh, how did she come into contact with this? Well, when they got home from the airport, you know, just like anyone, if you haven't seen your your uh, girlfriend, boyfriend, spouse, whatever in a long time, they decided to get a little busy and she realizes that Carmen has that rash not only on her, but it kind of goes down to where people get busy. And so that is even more body horror for you to think about because you're like, oh my gosh, where do those hands go? Where did the vine hand go? And what is happening where that hand went? And so now I'm worried about kids and crotches and, and all this other stuff as this stuff is progressing because it moves very, very fast. There's really no time to breathe in this story because not only is everyone else coming to her with these problems she's also telling us the reader 
uh, how it's progressing across her chest. Her arm is starting to dry out and the skin's starting to crack and split. And she's rubbing everything she can, all kinds of ointments and creams and stuff all over to try to, to try to make it better. And nothing works. Anyway, Carmen gets mad. While Marnie is in this kind of fever rush uh, rant about everything, she accidentally says that Kyle was out there. And so Carmen gets pissed off at that and leaves. Marnie's there. She decides to turn on the news. And the news is talking about how that giant uh, spire with, and she, uh, Plim says, uh, a spire with alabaster blossoms, um, which is just another, you know, it's a cool choice of words, that they're releasing that all these big flowery all these pods that they saw at the very beginning have now blossomed into these huge flowers and they're just releasing millions and billions of seeds so many seeds they've released so many seeds that they're starting to black out the sky and that is terrifying imagery because we already know what this thing does if you make contact with it so now these seeds are just exploding the sky's getting blacked out uh, the news is telling you to shut all your windows, you know, tape off your vents, you know, turn off your AC units and all that kind of stuff and just kind of hunker down inside. And it's very reminiscent of uh, Body Snatchers and The Happening and that one Alien Covenant, I think it's the Alien Covenant movie, you know, where they release the spores, the the black goo stuff, and then they go down to that island and it's kind of integrated itself into everything you know, the plants are, the pollen is now that black mist or whatever. That was a really cool uh, Covenant um, movie if you haven't seen it. So uh, she decides to lay down on the couch because at this point she is wrecked. Her whole body's starting to get red and dry up. She lays down. She doesn't, she can't, she's starting to get to where she can't move her limbs and parts of her that have been encrusted uh, with this dry, cracked red skin. She lays down on the couch and falls asleep and she wakes up because she's feeling choked and she's actually having now to force herself to breathe. She can't breathe on her own. She says her eyes are crusted over. She can't open them. She can't move her arms. Her legs have like pasted together and grown together in this thick, crusty callus where this plant thing is just starting to, you know, take over her, her whole body. And, um, so she she's essentially drying up and suffocating. Whatever this thing is, is using her to to grow itself. And it uh, it pretty much ends right there. I mean, she's on the couch. She dries out. She looks down and realizes that her body is covered in these flowers. Did you ever see The Thing? Is it called The Thing? No, Swamp Thing. I'm sorry. Swamp Thing way back in maybe the 80s or the 90s. And uh, at the very end, it shows like a little white flower sprout out of uh, the main female character's back. You remember that? That's kind of what this made me think of. If, you, if you've seen that movie, if you haven't, check it out. Um, but it says that all these uh, little pods and things are popping on her and these flowers sprout and it shoots seeds everywhere. And she says, my body is a garden. And uh, yeah, you realize that this is just what's going to happen to everybody. And it's super, uh, just it's not subtle body horror, but it's just done in a way that's not overtly grotesque. Like I said, it's just, it's very lyrical and... I wish there was a better, I'm sure there's a better word for poetic, but it's lyrical and poetic in the way that it's not in your face, like, you know, talking about, you know, oh, gory, you know, explosions of of whatever and all this other stuff. It's just, you know, her body's a garden. It explodes in these flowers and these seeds go everywhere. But the dread part of it, because we already knew she was a goner, but the dread part is thinking about all the other people, right? So you're thinking about all these kids 
whose heads are about to explode in these giant flower seed pod things and all the people that you want to call, you know, all these innocent people, you know, and that's part of the dread and the horror. So, yeah, those are my top three. Uh, Like I said, there's 12 stories in this book. Those are the three that I think, I guess, just to me as the reader that I enjoyed the most because they kind of touched on so many different things, uh, uh, you know, internally me as a reader. So so that's why I enjoy them the most. So let's talk about my honorable mentions. All right, we'll move on through these. I'm not going to go through the whole story, uh, but I do just want to talk uh, just so you kind of get an idea because all mine were kind of ocean related, I guess. But there are other great stories in here. So two of the sci-fi stories, and I would say traditionally sci-fi just because they occur in space and they're spaceships and all these, you know, they're way in the future and all that. Um, Gemini Syndrome and Polychromatic Screams. Gemini Syndrome is like uh, there's a space station out there and they're doing all kinds of research. And the main character out there, her dad is sick back home and she wants to go back to Earth to see him. But the only way back is to uh, be, you know... Uh, frozen or whatever and put on a ship suspended animation and it takes 10 years so it'll be 10 years before she gets back but her dad is dying of cancer or something like that and she needs to get back soon so they have this new technology that they've been trying out haven't really quite got all the kinks worked out where you are digitized or whatever kind of like in star trek if you can imagine that she is super nervous about it and it starts from the very beginning where she talks about she's nervous about doing this teleportation, you know, redigitizing stuff, breaking down her molecular structure and then putting it all back together somewhere else because there's been a lot of rumors about this technology screwing up and that it's dangerous and the people have been hurt or even killed doing it. And on top of that, she's leaving all the people back at the station and, you know, there's a little hint of a relationship there with someone else. So she's dealing with a lot of different stuff, nervous about going leaving these relationships. Also, her father is sick and possibly going to die very soon. And the the part about this, the ending to this story is probably one of the one of the best as far as just making you feel sick to your stomach. Um, it reminds me of the 2006 film, The Prestige. If you've never seen that, it's got the guy that plays Wolverine now and the dude that plays Batman. I can't remember their names, but you know who I'm talking about. It's not, I guess it's more of a thriller but very much horror by the end of it. I feel like it's it's uh, makes you like I said, it makes you sick to your stomach when you see what happens in the end. Same way with this story. You're just you feel so uneasy and dirty and just like bleh. so. Check this story out. Um, I think it also plays with the ideas of trusting your gut and taking a chance. So those two ideas a lot of times are at odds with each other. So you might be trusting your gut, which will keep you from taking a. a a risk or a chance somewhere. But people tell you all the time, well, you'll never do anything if you don't ever take a chance, right? So this story kind of deals with the negative side of not trusting your gut and taking a chance. And, you know, when you take a chance, part of taking that chance is, you know, it's either going to work out or it's not. So this is kind of what can happen when all the, you know, when you can't uh, trust that taking a chance is going to work out the right way. So she's on this ship. She wants to go. She goes through all this stuff. She goes to get digitized. The doctors and the scientists and all that that are in there, they're trying to, you know, they're very uh, company, you know, uh, representatives and stuff. So they just they just are trying to shove her through the process. You know, hey, it's fine. Chill out. Everything's going to be fine. You're worrying about nothing. And so they set her up. And they're just treating her, her like, um, you know, not even like a human almost. They're like, hey, just it's, it's fine. Just get in here and get out and we'll all be done with it. I don't want to really 
give away any more than that, but just know that it's sci-fi, the setting is cool, the ending is fucking awesome. So check out that story. Polychromatic Polychromatic Screams is to me, it again occurs on a spaceship. It's like an abandoned salvage mission, you know, very much like uh Event Horizon or Aliens. Is it is it Aliens 2? Is it I think Aliens 2 is just called Aliens, but you know what I mean. Don't be a gatekeeper, you know, horror fan asshole. You know what I'm saying. Aliens number two, the one where they are doing a salvage mission and that like that's they go and check out these things. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of something like that because that's what these guys are doing. They see a ship and they go back to check it out. Um and it reminds me of the phrase, if these walls could talk, just because once you read it, you'll see what I'm talking about. But it also plays with the idea if something um you know whether it's a, a being or an alien or whatever exists in a way that we don't necessarily comprehend so in this one I, i'll say that it's almost like this thing exists in waves of light so you know light we just see as this thing that's around us or whatever but what if that what if those wavelengths what if those lights and those um you know uh those uh like the rainbow that you see, you know, when you look through like a gym or something like that. What if all those were actually beings and those things were, uh, sent, you know, just unseen sentient objects that could do stuff or could trap people or hurt people or whatever. You know, what happens when that thing, when that whatever the fuck it is, comes on a ship and decides to start wreaking some havoc, okay? So, pretty cool. Check that one out. I like that one too. Um, Planet of the Hungry and Buzzkill. So Buzzkill is actually available episode six, season 19, No Sleep Podcast. You can see Buzzkill on there. Check it out. It's very cool. It's done very well. These two I refer to as love stories. That's what I think. Uh, Hopeless love stories uh, that aren't going to end well, but love stories all the same. So Planet of the Hungry to me, I felt like this was like a dystopian sort of Romeo and Juliet. Don't let that turn you off, okay? Because you might not be a Romeo and Juliet fan. But just as far as two people from two different sides of the fence that are loving each other or whatever, I guess it kind of had that aspect to it, you know? And the struggles of them, you know, trying to form this relationship really fast because Romeo and Juliet didn't happen over a long period of time. If you remember that story, it's very quick. It all happens very fast. This thing is the same way. I will say about Planet of the Hungry, it's probably the longest story in there, I think. Um, if not the longest, maybe the second longest. I think it's the longest one in there. And it, it's the one that could be, I think, uh, it, it could create other books or other series if if Plim ever wanted to. It's got great information in there that you could really play with and create a whole bunch of other you know, scenarios because it deals with like interplanetary stuff. Uh, different groups of people, you know, very Dune-ish as far as like the haves and the have-nots and, you know, who's taking control and all that. So I really, really liked. And another thing that I liked about it is one of the main characters, uh, Celine, if you are a Mortal Kombat fan on MK11, uh, Kronika, the description of Celine kind of reminds me of Kronika. I don't know. It's just a little side note, just something kind of cool to think about. She's from another planet. She comes down to... Well, you think she's from another planet. She's actually ends up being from where she goes. She goes there. There's this weird, like, cyborg, robot, impish kind of dude that's down there that helps her out. And you find out more about Earth and what's happened to it. And it's really... It's a lot about greed, uh, the lust for money and power, 
Um, you could add other elements in there if you wanted to about, uh, you know, climate change, the destruction of the earth. It's got all these different elements about basically the end of the world and how power hungry people that only want and only want for their self and only care about greed and money and power and all that and how those things can turn deadly. Also, how convenience can lead to this type of atmosphere and eventually the end of the world. So really cool. Like I said, it's got a lot of lore to play with. It could really stretch itself out and be a series of stories, maybe not with these characters because of the way it ends, but with the people that they talk about and the other characters and groups and tribes and all that that are discussed within the story. So this, as far as it being a love story, it's crazy because it's called Planet of the Hungry and even the verbiage that they use in the story is very uh, broken down and poked post-apocalyptic so it'll make more sense when you read it but it it's about these like nanotechnology thing that has kind of integrated itself with everything on the planet this is the plants this is the animals it's the people it's all this stuff but what it does is it had this weird side effect to where whatever your natural uh i don't know in not not instinct necessarily but if you like if you were greedy it was gonna make you really greedy if you were murderous it was gonna make you really murderous if you were hungry you were going to have this insatiable hunger and all that and so that ties into the ending in a way that just like I thought was so cool and super creative and that's where it turned into this kind of badass cyberpunk you know uh, futuristic Romeo and Juliet kind of ending for me so I enjoyed it I think you read it tell me what you think Maybe you like it, maybe you don't. Maybe you totally disagree with me, but I think you'll see what I'm talking about when you read that story. Buzzkill is kind of short and sweet. It's a simple story. Again, like I said, you can listen to it on the No Sleep podcast, but it's about what happens if bees were to take over the world, I guess, like super jumped up, crazy, mutant bees that have the ability to do some weird shit to people. It's... uh, it plays out to me very much like a Tales from the Crypt episode, not only because of the no hope, bad guy wins kind of thing, but just in its flow, the, the, the way it flows, the way it reads, it could, it could very much be a short, you know, 30-minute episode on some type of horror se- series. It, it could be done really well. It could have some kick-ass makeup and special effects in it, and I just think it would be a great... Um, you know, short in one of these like Black Mirror series or, you know, Tales from the Crypt type things, whatever. Uh, it's a love story because it has a guy in it. I think he's just trying his, and, and this is another part, again, it's dealing with relationships. It's a man and his wife and something super bad happens to her and he's trying his best not to let it happen to him. The world's in this, you know, apocalyptic, you know, it's all over kind of state and he's doing what he can to... Uh, take care of his wife and it just kind of shows you what happens when someone I don't I don't know if you want to say can love someone too much but the thing I like about Buzzkill and this is like if you want to do a deep dive on this story you can take it for face value and it's very entertaining extremely entertaining story but the concept that it deals with in there is like what are you willing to do for someone you love which sounds very generic and cheesy but what I mean is what kind of pain are you like, cause you're going to go through pain if someone you care about is in pain anyway, right? You're going to hurt emotionally and all that, but you're not feeling the pain, pain, the actual physical pain and, you know, the maddening pain that they're feeling because that's, you know, specific to them. That's what's going on in their head or physically to their body. So what would you be willing 
to put someone else through because you love them so much? You know, at what point are you just doing it for you or what point is it selfish? And it really made me think about um, what we do in, you know, maybe a hospital situation. So if someone's in a coma or if someone's on a breathing tube or something like that, what are we willing to put our person through, whether it's, you know, your spouse or your boyfriend, girlfriend, or a, a parent, a sibling, whatever, you know, and you're the person that has to make that choice. Like, is this person suffering or not? I don't know. I have to use all the information I have to make my best guess. And so I, I think it kind of dives into a deeper, uh, that, that idea, like way deeper. And so I think, um, that's, that's kind of the deep dive on it, but it's also just really entertaining too. So that's it. What Remains When the Stars Burn Out, check it out. Go to plmcmillan.com. Check out all of her information on there. There's a lot of good stuff. She's got a YouTube channel, Plim Talks, which is spelled PLN Talks. Plim Talks, Dead Languages Podcast. They have a new episode every Wednesday. It's Plim and Carson Winter, and they do a great show on there. It's funny, but also insightful as far as uh, writing information, the biz, and all that kind of stuff. Check that out. She also has an art portfolio. She has merch that you can buy. She's also working on other stories currently. And she has a novella out, Sisters of the Crimson Vine. I'm hoping that I can do an interview with her on this book. I'm going to reread it again so I don't, so I can remember all this stuff about it. Hopefully that'll be coming, um, you know, in the next month or two. We'll try to work on that. All right. So I know it was a long episode today, but I really, it's my favorite author. I really wanted to highlight her works and talk about my love for her talent and her abilities as a horror author. And I can't wait to see what else she produces in the future. If it wasn't for Nocturnal Transmissions and that original story that I had heard um, a year or so ago, I would have never been introduced to a bunch of other writers and a lot of the new horror writers and talent that's out there. There probably wouldn't be a podcast or anything like that. It just kind of reinvigorated not only my love for horror, but my excitement to find other people who love this shit just as much as I do. And also that there is more to life than H.P. Lovecraft and Edgar Allan Poe. So thanks again. Thank you for listening. This is Just James Horror Reviews. I'm your host. Just James. Take care.